0: We got some riveting scripture this evening, so bear with me a little bit. All right, we're looking at Judges, obviously. uh, So, then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with them rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian Midian was north of them, by the hill of Mora in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has served me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Uh, Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with Shall not go with you. Shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, "Everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people knelt, knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With "The three hundred men who lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into your hand." And let all the others go every man to his home. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them, as far as Beth Barah, and also the Jordan. So all the men of uh, Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah, and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They called Oreb the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. All right, Judges 8. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loads of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said... Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also. For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not (laughs) rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So, I've been saying each week, that the book of Judges
1: is a collection of true stories written with the attempt to show you two things, that you have a great need for a savior and you have a great savior for your need. It's like two wings of an airplane. And um, the question I want to begin with tonight is this. What do you think God is inviting you into? You might not be a Christian and you might be kind of on the outside looking in at this thing called Christianity and I would pose that same question to you. What do you think it is that Christians think God is inviting them to do in the world and to be in the world. And if you are, sorry, I'm going to keep messing with this stupid mic thing. If, um, if you are a Christian, what do you think it is that God has invited you to be a part of? What do, you, what do you think it is that he has invited you to do with your life? That's the question. As you think about that question, I want to try to set up this passage that Megna beautifully read for us. Um, this way. Here's how I want to set it up. Uh, it's been a while since I've mentioned uh, the TV show called The Office. And maybe, um, maybe you're unfamiliar with it. If you are uh, unfamiliar with it, you can find it on Netflix. You can watch it. Um, but one of – actually, we watched this episode last night. My wife and I watched it. It's probably the most cringeworthy, awful episode. No, that's, that's, that's more cringeworthy. Here's a good point. I heard Scott's tots. So that's more cringeworthy. Uh, <laughs> This is the episode where Michael invites Jim and Pam over to his house, over to his condo, for a dinner party. The four of y'all that haven't seen the office are like, what's happening right now? But here's what what happens if you're unfamiliar. Um, Michael keeps asking Jim to come over to his house, come over to his condo, we want to serve you dinner. Jim keeps evading, but he kind of tricks Jim and Pam to come in over to their house. And so he, they agree, and here they come. And so as soon as Jim and Pam walk in the door, it's immediately awkward because they, they present a host, a host gift to uh, Jan. It was a bottle of wine, and Jan immediately insults it and says, oh, this would be really good for cooking. And uh, so it's instantly awkward, and they go into the living room, and they sit down, and they quickly realize food hasn't even been prepared yet. It's going to take three more hours for the food to be cooked And so they're playing games and uh, and Michael and Jan are kind of obnoxiously referring to each other as babe the whole time you remember this? Like, can you get that for me, babe? Yeah, sure thing, babe. Um, At one point, Dwight shows up unannounced with his babysitter. (laughs) uh, Super awkward. Um... Uh, everyone, everyone is sitting down in the living room just kind of waiting for the food to cook and Jan if you remember um, she puts the CD on of her assistant Hunter who had made this music and so the music starts playing and she starts kind of weirdly dancing and everybody's just kind of sitting in the circle of like what is happening and so she kind of like awkwardly walks over to Jim and grabs his hand to try to get him to dance with, with her and, uh, and he does that and it's just this it's Totally bizarro, and you see Michael and Jan's relationship, how toxic it is. They're fighting the whole time, and it kind of crescendos with her throwing a, one of his trophies through one of his new plasma screen TV, which is mounted on the wall, which is about the size of a Harry Potter book. And uh, the police get called in. It's, it's just horrible. It's, it's this, it's, it is such a, it is an amazingly cringeworthy episode. But the reason I was thinking about that is because I don't know if Jim and Pam fully knew what they were getting themselves into when they accepted this invitation. Here they accept this invitation and they come in and they're like, whoa, this is maybe not what I was expecting. And it made me think about that because as I think about what God invites us into, the, the way of life God invites us into, my perception is and my guess is is that most people that claim the name of Jesus don't actually know what it is, that, what God's inviting you into. And the reason why I think that is because this is a relatively new uh, understanding for me. It probably wasn't until three years ago. I mean, I've I've been following Jesus since I was in high school, and I don't think it was really until three years ago that this light bulb kind of went off for me. That That what God is inviting you into is into a life of weakness. Is into a life of embracing weakness and desperation. So this is going to be fun to talk about tonight. Here's what I want to do. I want to look at this passage. I think I'm convinced it's all over the Bible. That is, this idea is in this passage very clearly. And so I want to set up this, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the power of weakness, the weakness of power, and then why this is good news. The power of weakness, the weakness of power, and why in the world this would be good news. First, the power of weakness. If you were here last week, um... Or even if you weren't, here's here's the setup. The setup is there is this foreign army called Midian, and they're horribly oppressing the people of Israel. And so God raises up this weak, cowardly, doubting guy named Gideon to deliver the people of Israel from the Midianites. So Gideon gathers this army around him of 32,000 soldiers. It's a pretty good-sized army. The only problem is you find out in chapter 8 the Midianites have 135,000 soldiers. That's one Israelite for every four Midianites. So the odds are stacked against them. But, you know, the underdogs, you know, pull through. Weirder things have happened. This might be the, the greatest upset in military history. So what God does, look at, look at chapter 7, verse 2. God comes to Gideon and he says, okay, we've got a problem. You have too many soldiers, so, verse 3, God tells Gideon to announce, hey, if anybody is afraid, you can go home. And immediately 22,000 Israelite soldiers leave, which I'm sure was very encouraging for Gideon. So now, um, he, but now there's one Israelite for every 13 Midianites. Okay? Odds just got worse. Look at verse 4. God says, okay, yeah, we still got too many. And I'm not going to go into this, but God throws out this weird, like, dog drinking test thing, and it whittles down the army until it gets down to 300 people, and God's like, "Okay, I can work with that." 300 people up against 135,000 bad guys, as it were. So, to put that into perspective, imagine Tom, uh, imagine a Neyland Stadium filled up with people, only they're soldiers with weapons, and then fill up Thompson Bowling all with soldiers with weapons. And then add 10,000 more people. That's about 135,000. Versus maybe about everybody in the size of this room. <laughs> that, that would be a little scary. That's, and, by the way, the Bible says, oh, we don't have any weapons. So it's all of us versus 135,000 people with weapons. That's one Israelite for every 450 Midianites. Now, um, this makes no sense whatsoever. I didn't include it in your handout because it's, it's, it would have been way too long, but here's the story. Here's what happens. It's kind of cool. Uh, the 300 soldiers approach this giant army of 135,000 at night, and all they have are clay pots and torches and trumpets. We've got no weapons. And they roll in and here's this 135,000 people sitting out there and they smash the pots and they start blowing the trumpets. And all the Midianites wake up in the middle of the night and they're freaked out and chaos kind of breaks loose. And as soon as you wake up and all you see are people running, you just grab your sword and start stabbing people. So the Midianites are just stabbing and killing each other. And here's the 300 weirdos on the outside just watching... The Midianites devour themselves and their jaws are dropped and their eyes are open, and basically everybody kills themselves except for a few stragglers who run off into the night. Now why in the world, I mean it's pretty cool, but why in the world would God set it up this way? Well look at verse 2, chapter 7 verse 2. God does this in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. God wants Israel to become so weak that they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that salvation is from the Lord. He's taken away the conclusion of of them thinking, oh, we did this. We were strong and we did this. Think about how it would have felt for these 300 dudes approaching this army. They would have been terrified. They would have thought to themselves, we are going to die. They would have thought to themselves, uh, I mean, they would have felt extremely vulnerable. They would have felt weak. They would have felt inadequate. They would have said, we don't have what it takes to do this. We are not enough. They're put in a position where they're so desperate they have to trust the Lord because they have no other options. They're desperate for the Lord to show up. And here's what I want to show you. That feeling is the good life. That feeling of weak inadequate, desperate, that's what God's inviting you into. That's what God is inviting you into to experience as somebody that trusts him. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Meaning, Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, then you need to live life like the way that I lived it, which was how? In humility and in weakness and in self-sacrifice and in desperation. Doesn't that sound amazing? This is the life that God calls us into. And I want to try to show you tonight, it's, it's so counterintuitive, it's so countercultural, and yet it is the way. Do you know what we just sang a second ago? In Jesus Cast a Look on Me, we just sang this line, make me poor and keep me low. Did you know that you just prayed that prayer? <laughs> you just said to God, hey God, will you make me poor and will you keep me low? Now, why in the world would anybody pray that? Because we made you, right? We put it on the screen and we tricked you. No. The reason why anybody would pray that is because it is only when you are weak and poor and low, it is only when you are desperate that you will connect with God. That's the only way. Weakness is the only way to connect into the presence and the power of God. That's what faith is, by the way. That's what faith feels like, at least. Joe Novenson, who used to be the senior pastor at Lookout Mountain uh, Perez, a little shout out to my chat rats. And um, here's what he said once, and I've never forgotten it. He says, the feel of faith. You want to know what faith feels like? He says, the feel of faith is not strength, but it is humble weakness. It is dependent weakness. The feel of faith is not strength. It's dependent weakness. Weakness. Think about what it means to be a Christian. When, when somebody becomes a Christian, God's saving power only works in their life when they admit their need, when they come to God with need and with weakness. You know, we, we sing this song uh, in RUF, Come Ye Sinners, Come Ye Sinners for it. You know, we sing that song, but um, one of the lines in it is um, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. It's fancy old person language, old ancient language of saying, um, the only thing God requires from you is need. All you need is need. Becoming a Christian is you coming to God with weakness and in need and turning to him for mercy. That's how somebody becomes a Christian. All you need is need. That need, weakness, being brought low, that's the pathway into the heart of God. If you were at... Um, Winter conference this weekend, and you, I shared this story, but I'll I'll share it again for the rest of y'all. But um, whenever I go to the grocery store, and I come back from the grocery store, and you know you get your trunk full of groceries. If you're anything like me, I don't like taking multiple trips back and forth from the house to the car. Are you with me, my people? So here's what I do: is is I load up every bag on every finger that I can, so that the plastic is ripping into my phalanges, and I'm just I'm I'm hooking it onto every thing that I can, and now that I've got my hands loaded up with bags, as I head into the house, you know, waddling into, my, into the kitchen, you know, we still have young enough kids where I, when I come home, they get excited to see me, like, daddy, daddy, and they want, they want me to hold them. In fact, when Reed, was, when Reed was little, was really little, you know Reed, he plays basketball. He, uh, <laughs> he, uh, when Reed was maybe two or three, and he was figuring out how to talk, he would say, hold you me ho me That's how he would say it. And for some reason, that phrase has continued on. I mean, he's, he's six, over six years old now, and he still says, ho you me ho you me He can talk perfectly fine. He just says, <laughs> ho you me So when I come through the door with all these groceries, and they're like, daddy, daddy, ho you me ho you me ho me As much as I would love to, I cannot receive them. I, cannot, can, I can't hold me them. <laughs> and the reason why is because my hands are full. In the same way, if you come to God with your hands full, not with groceries, but with your trophies and your accomplishments and your achievements and say, God, this is why you should receive me. It's because I'm a good person, because I don't do X, Y, or Z like those people, because I do care about the Bible. I do care about my faith. I do care about the poor. I do care about social issues. This is why you should receive me. You'll never be able to connect with God. Because your hands are full. You have to put the groceries down. You have to put the trophies down. You have to show up with nothing. And it's when you come to God with nothing in your hands you bring, simply to the cross you cling, that you can connect with him. It is only through weakness. But here's the thing. Weakness is not just the way into the Christian life. Weakness is the way of the Christian life. John the Baptist said it best. He said, uh, he must become more, I must become less. (laughs) Christian growth is you growing in your weakness, you growing in your dependence upon Jesus, you growing in desperation. We just sang it in this other song. I didn't plan this, but we just sang, I need you every hour. Every hour I need you. You know, I have a friend, this this reminds me, I have a friend that goes to AA meetings, and he's not an alcoholic. He goes to AA meetings so that he can get in touch with that level of desperation. I need you every hour. He says, you know, when I start to feel uh, self-sufficient, when I feel like I feel, I feel confident in my gifts and in my personality, if I start feeling independent, I get around people that really know what it's like to be desperate because they teach me what it looks like to say, I cannot make it through this day. I can't make it through this hour. I can't make it through this minute without your help. That's the picture of what God invites us into. That level of weakness, that level of desperation, that level of vulnerability <coughs> Martin Luther, um, you know the 95 Theses guy? You know what he said on his deathbed? I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Here's what he said on his deathbed He said, We are but beggars. This is true. We're but beggars. When you recognize you are but a beggar and you embrace a life of weakness and vulnerability and desperation, (coughs) the weird thing is, is that's the way that you hook into the power of God. That's the power of weakness may not be what you thought. That's not what I thought until three years ago. That's the power of weakness. But Gideon got a little taste of it. He was weak. He was scared. 300 of us. We had to depend on the Lord. But this is the book of Judges, so all things kind of unravel pretty quickly. And so when you get to chapter 8, you see uh, this great contrast start to happen in Gideon's life. So let's look at that second idea, the weakness of power. Here's what happens. There's, there's, there's really so much to cover here. I only want to give you a couple of highlights or lowlights depending on how you look at it, but we're only going to cover a little snippets. Here's what happens. Look at chapter 7 verse 24. Right after God accomplishes this miraculous defeat with just 300 people, what does Gideon immediately do? He uh, immediately starts calling in for reinforcements which he just completely forgets the whole point of the fact that God wanted him to the small army so that he would have to depend on the Lord. He says, I don't like that feeling. I'm going to revert back to my strength and my self-sufficiency and my control and my strategy for my life. And then look at this little episode in uh, chapter eight, verse four through seven. Gideon and his army, they're chasing down the survivors. Like they're these kings of Midian that have run off into the night and getting his people, they're chasing them down and they come to this town of Succoth and they start asking for resources. They're like, hey, we need some bread. We need some food for our soldiers. And here's what they say. They're like, hey, we're, no, we're not going to help you because um, when the Midi- I don't think you're going to be able to beat the Midianites again. And when they regroup and they come back, if they found out that we helped you, they're going to kill us. So no, we're not going to help you, no thanks. Which is ba- basically their way of saying, you know, you got lucky once with like the trumpet thing, but you can't beat them again. We have no faith in you. They publicly disrespect them. And did you hear what he said in verse, look at verse 7 of chapter 8. He basically says, when I capture those two Midianite kings, I'm going to come back here and, quote, tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. And you know what happens? He runs off and he captures those two Midianite kings. And then when he comes back to the town, you know what he does? He tortures the people that didn't give him any food and he murders everybody in the town. And you're like, oh, okay. Like, Gideon's becoming a monster. But here's what's happened. His ego was so fragile, he was like, if you disrespect me, you will pay for it. What does that show you? That shows you that deep down what matters to him so much is his image, his reputation, him being seen as being the man. And then here's one more little snippet. This is my favorite. After Gideon wins all these military victories, in verse 22, the people come to him, and they're like, hey, we want you to rule over us. Will you be our king? And look at the very last verse that I included, verse 23. Gideon says to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Doesn't that sound sweet? That sounds spiritual. That sounds very pious. Sounds like a good uh, Sunday school answer. I didn't include it in your your, uh, handout, but later in chapter 8, you know what Gideon names his son? He names his son Abimelech which means nothing to you and me until you look up what it means in Hebrew, and it means, my father is king. (laughs) Just not so subtle, is it? (laughs) So what do we see? We We see somebody whose faith is superficial, whose faith is external. I mean, he knows the right words to use, but that language has not shaped his heart. That hasn't impacted his heart. What drives his heart is... I need, the re- I need the credit. I need the recognition. I need to be seen as the man. I need to be strong. I need to be seen as put together. I want to actually be in charge. I want the power. I don't like feeling weak. I don't like feeling desperate. I'm allergic to that. I want control. I want to be self-sufficient. And he becomes like this bloodthirsty, crazy, ego-driven maniac. I mean, Gideon is the Old Testament version of Walter White. You remember Walter White from the show Breaking Bad? I, I don't know if we're that... Outdated. We, you know, we can't reference a show from three years ago. But here's, what, but anyway, Walter White. If you remember the show, he began in a really kind of humble beginning. He had, he had lung cancer. Um, he has a, he had a um, disabled son. Uh, he was an, he was a uh, undercompensated chemistry high school, te- high school chemistry teacher. And he hated that feeling of being at the bottom. And so driven by pride, driven by the desire for power, he starts cooking meth and he starts making one bad decision after the other because he's getting power and he's getting control. And by the end of the series, he's just like a monster. He's murdered children. His family is totally destroyed. His life as he knows it is just up in flames. And that's Gideon. Gideon began with this humble beginning. He was weak. He had no other choice but to depend on the Lord, but he did not like that feeling of having to trust God. I don't want to trust you. I don't like feeling weak. I don't like being desperate. So he seized power, and he became this bloodthirsty, ego-driven maniac. Now here's my question. Do you resonate with that at all? Maybe not the bloodthirsty part. Although maybe, I don't know. But isn't there something in you that's like I'm allergic to trust in God or trust in anybody? It makes me feel out of control. It makes me feel vulnerable. I want power. I want I want to see I want to depend on myself. I can trust me. Can't trust a God I can't even see. I don't like feeling weak. And if and, and if that's you, you know that that's true when things start to pop up in your head or in your heart when you say things like I don't need a filter. I don't need a porn filter on my phone or on my computer. I got this. I can stop whenever I want. Or it's when you say things like, you know, I don't need my friends to stop me. I'm not a baby. I can go to a party and drink a little bit and then stop when I want to stop. Or you say things like, I'm not going to, I don't need to tell my friends or my pastor about the secret addiction or secret relationship I have. I got it under control. I don't want to damage my reputation. You see these instincts in us, these instincts of I don't want to feel weak. And if that's you, my question is how's that working for you? How's that working out? A life in which you seize power and control and you are self-sufficient and self-reliant, it actually leads to incredible weakness. That's the weird paradox of all this. You know, my guess is, though, um, this still may not be compelling or attractive for you. To, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live God's way of, of weakness and vulnerability and desperation and neediness. That doesn't sound fun. So let, let me end by showing you four reasons why I think this is good news. Why I really do believe this is the good life. It is counterintuitive. It does go against every instinct that you have. It is countercultural. But it is the good life. Here's four reasons. Number one. Because when you embrace weakness, you actually become free. It gives you freedom. Let me give you an example of this. You, uh, th- this is this is an outdated reference. This is an one. I'm showing my age here. You remember the movie Eight Mile with Eminem, B. Rabbit as he's played. Um, the whole, you know, one of the big things in the sh- in, in the movie is they have these freestyle rap battles, and you know, the whole point of these rap battles is to, you know, kind of publicly shame the other person. This guy's a tool, this guy's an idiot, and kind of, you know, I'm the man, I'm I'm, I'm elevated over this person. And so, uh, they're kind of doing through this whole thing, and when it gets to the final round of the freestyle rap battle, um, Eminem, instead of saying, this guy's a tool and I'm the man, he does the opposite. And he throws himself under the bus. Let me read you a couple of the lines, although I can't repeat everything that he says for the sake of the children. Um, but I, I'll give you a couple lines and I'm gonna, I've am going heavily edited these lines, but here's what he says this guy ain't no MC I know everything he's got to say against me, I am white I am a bum, I do live in a trailer with my mom my boy future is an Uncle Tom I do got a dumb friend named Cheddar Bob who shoots himself in the leg with his own gun, I did get jumped by all six of you chumps that's about as much as I could share but you get the point he chooses the way of weakness. He says he is the first to acknowledge that he failed, that they beat him up, that he is weak, that he's the, you know this white chump rapper guy, and he's like he throws himself under the bus, and what happens? At the end, it's like there's nothing else the person can say against him. He's totally free. He wins the thing because he was the first to acknowledge his weakness. That's freedom. Let me give an example of this in our lives. Some of you are scared to really engage in any sort of Actual role in ministry is because you're afraid. I've heard some of you say, I, I don't feel I would never want to lead a small group Bible study. Because what if somebody asks me a question about the Bible and I don't know the answer to it? Or I, I would feel uncomfortable sharing my faith in Jesus with somebody that doesn't share that same faith. Because what if they ask what if they raise an objection or an argument or they, they ask me a question, and I don't know how to answer it, I look stupid. But, but here's the thing, don't you see the power of weakness? You have the freedom to not know the answer. You have the freedom to look stupid. You have the freedom to fail. That's true freedom. True, when you embrace weakness, you actually are liberated. You're freed from having to be the man or having to be the well man. You're, you're free. That's why it's good news. Here's the second reason why it's good news. Is because of, you get security. Inner, deep security. Aziz Ansari has this little stand-up bit. I'll read a bit. Here's what he says. <clears throat> he said, I don't like, he said, I don't dislike anybody based off of race, religion, sexuality, anything of that nature. But if you're a white dude in a bar with a backwards baseball cap and a button down shirt, there's a pretty good chance I hate you.
0: <laughs>
1: and he goes on and he explains the reason why is because it's typically those guys when they're leaving the bar, somebody bumps into them, they're like bowing up and like wanting to fight you because you bumped into them. And his whole bit is like, how insecure of a person do you have to be for someone to just bump into you and you instantly want to hurt them? And that's his point. When you are committed to strength and bravado and machismo, guess what? You are the most insecure person on the planet. You just became the most insecure person. Contrast that with Charles Spurgeon. There's this amazing story, Charles Spurgeon, who's this famous 19th century Baptist preacher, and he's preaching one time, doing his preachy thing, and then after church, this was words, he's praying words, and after church, you know, he's in the back shaking hands, and um, this lady comes up to him and says, you are the most arrogant preacher I have ever heard in my life. And he says to her, lady, you don't know the half of it.
0: That's weakness.
1: You've ins- he just got insulted, and rather than having to defend his honor, what did he do? He could take it, in fact, he one-upped up- he her. You think this is bad? You you barely even know me. Wait until you get to know me. How secure of a person do you have to be for somebody to insult you and instead of having to defend yourself, you can just take it? When you choose the path of weakness, you have such an inner security, you no longer have to defend yourself against any form of criticism. You're free, you're secure. Here's Here's the third thing. Third reason why a path of weakness is good news. Because it actually connects you to other people in meaningful ways. You know, I'm sure most of y'all have heard or watched or at least familiar with Brene Brown's work. She has a famous um, TED talk that she did, bazillion views on YouTube. Y'all have seen it, maybe. But anyway, her basic, you know, she does a lot of work on shame and vulnerability, and her basic research kind of boils down to this premise that when you are vulnerable... You open yourself up to real connection with other people. When you're vulnerable, you open yourself up to connection with other people. But here's the contrast if you keep your secrets to yourself, if you hide your shame, if you hide the embarrassing parts of your life, the parts of yourself that you hate, because you are so committed to being seen as being buttoned up or as strong or as put together, you will have friendships, but you'll have superficial friendships, you'll have superficial relationships. It is only when you open up and begin to share those parts of your story that make you feel embarrassed, share the parts of your story that you hate, share the parts of your story that are scary and yucky. When you do that, guess what? You open yourself up to deep and meaningful friendships and connection. But how does it feel to do that? You feel vulnerable, you feel weak. Weakness is the way. Weakness is the way to connect with other people. And here's the fourth thing. Weakness is the way to connect with God. That is, there, there is no other way to connect with God than through weakness. Weakness is the way in which you are saved. And so here's the good news. If, if you feel weak tonight, if you feel inadequate, if you feel overwhelmed, if you feel like there's more on my plate than I have the capacity to do, I feel like I'm drowning, the good news for you is this you actually might be closer to the kingdom of God than you thought you were. The invitation for you tonight is to come to Jesus with your weakness and in your weakness. You know that song, Come Ye Sinners? That, that literally is the line. That, that, that's the invitation. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. And what happens when weak people come to Jesus? How does it describe Jesus? Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. That's the paradox. You want to embrace a life of power and self-sufficiency and strength? Okay? You will just live an irredeemably weak life. But if you embrace your weakness and come to terms with your weakness and desperation and you bring it to Jesus, guess what? You get access to to the power of God in Christ. This is what God is inviting you into. He is inviting you into a life of weakness and vulnerability and desperation and neediness and dependency. But it's the good life. Because it is only then will you connect with the power of God and you will be free, you will be secure, you will be able to connect with other people in deep and meaningful ways and you will be able to connect with God himself. That's the invitation for you to actually believe that prayer you just sang. Make me poor and keep me low. Seeking only thee to know. That's the invitation. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to think through what it might mean for us to depend on you and to trust you and to feel out of control and to need you every hour. I pray that that would not be bad news to our ears, but that would actually be good news. Help us to know that you invite us into fullness and into power, but a power that is yours, that we might be able to say with Paul, when I am weak, I am strong. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.